Thank you for tuning into the weekly sermon from Journey of Hope, a United Methodist community. We are a welcoming community that fosters belonging and acceptance. Through ministries, we enable individuals to transform their lives as they learn to follow Jesus Christ. We follow the guidance of the Spirit in sharing our faith through missional adventures, building relationships, and offering our witness to our community and world. We serve the Elgin, Illinois area and are located at the corner of Randall Road and Highland. To learn more about us, you can check us out at johumc.org or any of our social media platforms by searching Journey of Hope. And now, here is this week's message. Our first reading is from 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and go give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part... Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Our second reading is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. May God bless the reading, hearing, and understanding of his word. Amen. Good morning. So, if you notice, I'm going to kind of give it away with the title. Does anybody know what this is? Page scraper, that's right, that's right. But with me, it takes on a far, far full meaning. It's hope, salvation, love, and God's grace. You see, I didn't really start out like that. 
I grew up with, you're stupid, you're ugly, you're dumb, you got crooked teeth, nobody would want you, you're worthless, you're, you're fat, we don't want you to work on our team here. Uh, no one loves you. That's how I started to grow up. The bullying. Oh, the bullying. I'm going to take you back just a little bit. At, I was adopted at a very young age. My, as an infant actually, but my birth mother, she decided that she was young, and she decided at that point in time it was more important to leave me in a crib as a tiny infant and go out with her friends than it was to care for a premature tiny infant. Um, her parents, who then began to start taking custody of her, felt it was just the crib wasn't a suitable environment for me to be alone in, so they opted to go for an abandoned vehicle, or their vehicle in the parking lot down at the bowling alley off of Weld Road, at which time some saviors obviously came to my rescue, and I became a ward of the court. I stripped of my name, stripped of everything at that point, I was just case number HG2131 in Kane County, Illinois. I no longer had an identity. At that point in time, they were able to find my biological father, who knew I was born but was a long road truck driver and was gone for like six months at a time. So he wasn't home a lot. Well, they were able to find him. They brought him into the courtroom and they asked him if he would take custody of me, otherwise I was going to have to be turned over into foster care. And he took a look at me. He actually got to see me that one time. And he said to my sister and my stepmother at the time, he goes, that's the most beautiful baby I have ever seen. Well, duh. But uh, anyway, then he turned around and he said, you know what, I will love her. I will always love her, but I can't take care of her the way I should. And at that point, he signed a piece of paper, and he turned me over to my then-would-be parents, the most incredible people ever. So that's where I'm going to start with you here, but I just ask that you join me in a word of prayer for a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, You've weighed on my heart. You've brought me this message. I now deliver this message to your people. May I just reach one person to begin to help them heal. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as I stated, I had the most wonderful parents a girl could ever have. They were just the absolute incredible best. So, but you go to school and kids are cruel. They start with the four eyes. They find out you're adopted, and it's nobody wants you. Get out of here, you know, that whole thing. And so it starts to begin to build layers. And when I say layers, it's layers of paint. Because, you see, troubles are layers. So we're going to add more layers. We don't want you here. You're worthless. You're ugly. 
get out. And as you build those layers on top and on top, you become less and less of yourself. Well, I kind of ran on down the road with, with, uh, with school and kept on going, tried to fit in, figured out where I could try to fit in. Not always, not necessarily with the wrong crowd, but not proud of some of the things I did because I was trying to fit in, trying to make a friend. And I just kind of gathered on down the road. Well then, 1983, my life really changed. I met a man who I really thought was my savior because he said I was, he, I was pretty and, you know, all these things. And so that relationship began. But it wasn't too long after that that the abuse began. And at that point, it was just mental abuse. Again, you're dumb. You're stupid. Quit school. You'll never be a nurse. You're too dumb. You're an idiot. Layers, again. Turn me against my parents. The people that were my salvation from day one turned me against them to a very volatile relationship. We became married because no one else would want me, right? No one else would love me. I'm not worth enough. We became married. One by one, I had three of my most amazing saviors ever, my three daughters, starting with Brittany, then Jenna, then Courtney. They were my rock. They were my everything. But what they endured out of that relationship and what I endured out of that relationship was far more than any one individual should ever have to. You see, they were beaten. They were abused. Their youngest, my youngest Courtney, was hit with wooden spoons to the point where she had welts on the back of her legs. You don't belong here. You're dumb. You can't get out of here. My middle daughter as well, wood, two by fours, whatever would be available. Again, but I couldn't leave. I knew I needed to, but I couldn't. You see, it was just layers and layers. I had no worth. I had nothing. Why would anybody want me? Because I was also told if I left, he would kill the girls and then me. Well, my girls, what did they do in all this? So they endured a lot of that harm. Finally, in 2000, I was able to get away. I ended up having a couple friends. They ended up being my saviors. They actually put me down to the point where it was, you do something or you risk losing your girls. I had to have somebody give me strength that I didn't have. And their name was John and Cheryl. They helped us get out. We got to the sheriff's office. I showed them the welts on the back of my daughter's legs, and it was just a trickling effect from there. I was able to finally get out. Finally started to get rid of some layers, or so I thought. Kept on, we moved through the divorce. We got through. 
Then my youngest daughter had some psychological issues that actually put her in a psychiatric ward for a short bit. Again, you didn't do enough, Kimberly. You're too dumb. You're too stupid. So there goes those layers again and again and again. After the, after we got out and uh, we got safe, we lived at a place called Hope of Rochelle. It was a, a women's shelter, and they began to help you regain your life. They helped get you the necessities that you need to move on with life. I was able to secure another job, and I was able to start to begin to save my girls and myself. So I could kind of start removing some layers again, little bit, little by little. We joined a church called Faith Lutheran Church in Rochelle, and I felt very much welcome there. The girls felt welcome there. They were actually baptized in that church, and we began to, to feel like we were beginning to remove, again, some layers. We felt involved. We felt included. My daughters were thriving. And we thought everything was going okay. But, as you know, self-doubt builds back in again. As soon as you think you're doing okay, there it comes again. You're stupid. You're ugly. You're dumb. It never truly went away. I know now it's because I tried to control it. I didn't let God control it. I tried to do what I thought was right. Even though I was praying and things, I really hadn't truly given it over to God. Well, I decided to go back to school. I'm too stupid, but I went back anyway. <laughs> I quit nursing school back when I was with their father with one semester to go. One semester to go. But I persevered on, went back to college, and in 2000 and something, <laughs> 2008, I graduated from Kishwaukee College with extreme high honors with a 4.0 grade point average. I wasn't as stupid as I thought. So, again, I get to take off a couple layers. Hmm, stupid. <laughs> okay. And, and so maybe I wasn't as stupid as I thought I was because I was able to get through school. Okay? I was able to get through. I then met my now husband, Ron, who he actually stalked me, but that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, and, of course, when I first met him, he's evil because 
men, get out. <laughs> you're evil. You're going to hurt me. Everybody else is going to hurt me. Started to self-doubt that. Kept starting to self-doubt. Go, go, go. The girl's dad would start to get involved and try to separate us. Yeah, there we go. Just put that all back on there. But Ron never gave up. As I said, he stalked me. Ron never gave up. And he helped me begin to see that there was some worth in me after all. That maybe I wasn't as worthless as I actually thought I always was. So, okay, we'll get rid of ugly teeth. We'll get rid of stupid. We'll get rid of no one loves you. But, you know, we kind of carried on from there. That entire back and forth challenge, constantly, constantly that back and forth challenge. Well, we moved to DeKalb after I married my husband. We moved to DeKalb. And I started to go to another church, Bethlehem Lutheran there in, in church there. Everything seemed really good for a while, and I'm not trying to undermine any church. But <laughs> as I tried to get involved, as much as verbally they welcomed me, when I tried to become involved, it was, <laughs> you washed our coffee pot? You are not part of fellowship time. You're supposed to be here for the ice cream social. Why'd you wash our coffee pot? We don't do that here. That's not your job. It's a coffee pot. And I kept trying to get pushback. I wanted to become more involved. And it's, well, we've already got a committee. Or we've already got our people. Or we've already got that. So again, no one loves you. No one cares. You're stupid. Because why would I? You know, I, I thought I was doing it right. But... Again, once again, I was told, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. So those layers keep building, and they keep building, and they keep building. I walk away from God again. Why would God want me? I can't even wash the coffee pot. You know, why am I there? God doesn't want me. My whole life changed in August of 2007, in 2014, or 2010, excuse me. My mom had a brain aneurysm. She survived. She came out the sweetest little child you'd ever meet. So in kind of a demented, twisted way, she was that innocent child that would clap for Santa Claus. She would be excited to trick-or-treat. Definitely complete role reversal, but was the sweetest person on the earth. But I, at that point in time, became the primary caregiver and making the decisions for both my mother and my father. You see, my father was developing dementia at that time, which we then turned on to Alzheimer's. He wanted no part of it. I had a brother who was pretty much, it's inconvenient for him. It may just, you know, having to do anything like that just may involve not being able to go on another trip. So it was me. It was me making those decisions. The heavy weight on my heart, having to make decisions, literally, 
Parents on hospice, parents not on hospice. Do I, don't I? What is the right decision? Well, consulting with the doctors, consulting with my family, things like that, I made the difficult decisions to put my mother, when we knew she got to the point where this was it, the doctor said her abdominal pain that she is now experiencing is either colon cancer or diverticulitis. Talk about the end of a spectrum. It's talking A and Z here. But her father had died of colon cancer. And I looked at the doctor. I said, Dr. Farboda, what would you do if this was your mother? He goes, I'd keep her comfortable. So that's all I need to hear. So I put her on hospice to preserve every bit of quality of life that she deserved to have at that moment in time. But that's not what I met. I got met with resistance again from an absent brother at that time who was, you just don't want to deal with her. You don't want to deal with your parents. Parent killer. You don't want to deal with them. Well, mom ended up succumbing a month after I put her on hospice in November of 14. And at that point in time at the funeral, my brother was up and he was praising me and praising everything about how wonderful everything was and how great of a daughter I was and how I held the family down. And my daughter turned over and she looked at me and she goes, Mom, who is that talking? <laughs> because it was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, I knew I made the right decisions. I knew they did the right thing for mom and dad. So again, I'm going to start moving some some things here. Take off some of those layers. After mom passed away, dad went down a very quick slope. His Alzheimer's, his wife of 62 years was gone. Why should he be here? Every time I took him to visit my mom in the cemetery, he begged me to leave him there. I said, dad, I can't. I wish I could, but I can't. Well, his Alzheimer's kept getting worse and worse and worse to a point where I actually had to take and we put him up at um, Alexian Brothers in Elk Grove Village into their psychiatric unit up there. Well, they tried to work on some medications because he started to become very violent. I was the only one that could calm my dad down. I was the only one that could help my dad when my dad was at his lowest moments. So, okay, that gives me some worth again. I'll take off a couple layers. Okay. So, again, it all comes down Dad begins to decline and decline and decline, so that heavy conversation comes up again. Now what do I do? I looked at the psychiatrist at the hospital, and I said, where is he at in his stage of Alzheimer's? He said, he's at the end of it. At that point in time, I consulted with my family and my daughters, and I thought, okay, we have to preserve what's left. We have to help Dad preserve what's left. And again, I made that difficult decision, but the decision that had to be made of putting dad on hospice. At that point in time, I reached out to that su supportive brother who remembers that I did it all. At that point in time, I was accused of a father having one foot on a banana peel, and I was pushing him in the grave with the other. So again, here we go. You didn't do it, Kim. You're not enough, Kim. God doesn't want you, Kim. 
those layers, the, the pain. Well, after I lost, after my dad passed away in 2017, I became lost. You see, at that point in time, I started to have some self-worth about myself. I could care for my mom, and I, then she passed, but I could care for my dad. It gave me purpose every day. I had somewhere to be. I had, as stressful as it was, I was the one that they called. I was the one that was there to calm dad down. I was the one that was there. Well, that gave me worth. But then dad died. Now what? Now what do I do with my life? I... <laughs> Again, <laughs> I have nothing anymore. I have nothing. Just after Dad's death, I joined another church in Sycamore, trying to just find my way. I aimlessly stumbling here or there, and again, kind of walked in. No one greeted you. I sat in a chair. And it was almost as if everybody's like, there's a new girl over there. We're not talking to her. Again, why would I be here? I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. Why are you in God's house? No one will talk to you. You don't deserve to be here. You're just not worth anything in life. So again, out of the church I went. Escaping God, or so I thought. Because God didn't leave me, even though I thought he did. So, early fall 2019, life just flipped upside down. I walked into this church, that time called Epworth. I literally live across the street, not even two blocks away. Drove by this church many times. Something kept telling me to go in this door. Why? You're not worthy of that door. But I walked in the door, and I was greeted by one individual at that time. Her name is Joan Esch. She said, hi, come and sit down with me. You want me to sit by you? What? And the doors started to open. Pastor develops many messages along this period of time that started to kind of help me, or so I thought, begin to break down chains. The redemption of, uh, the redemption of Scrooge message, if you remember that a few years ago, who talked about breaking down chains breaking down those chains and reducing Scrooge from those chains. And as I sat there, all I could do was cry. I could cry. I felt at that point chains breaking, literally, away. That, you know what, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can be here. Maybe I can stay here. Maybe God does want me after all. Pastor would, develop, uh, pastor would administer different messages, and we had the message on the cross where we would go and, and uh, take our little, our little red ribbons and put it up on the cross, and we'd, we'd put all of our sins and our troubles up there, and we'd leave. Well, at the end of the day, I took mine down, went right back out the door. 
Same message when Pastor had about the rocks in the backpack. You remember that? Where he'd put the rocks in the backpack, and the, the more troubles you have and the more burdens you have and everything, the heavier that backpack is, would be. Well, I'd come here. I'd leave my backpack after church. Here goes the backpack. Back out the door. I never truly let it go. I couldn't let the troubles go. Truly, I'm not worthy enough. Truly, God didn't want me. Clumsy, retarded, etc. No one truly ever wanted me, or so I thought. Well, there came the message about forgiveness and forgiving ourselves. And once again, I'm sitting in the pew, just, or in the chair, just going, you know, just bawling. That was the begin, beginning of really opening my door. I could forgive myself. I wasn't a parent killer. I wasn't worthless. I could get rid of all of this doubt and everything. After all, it was the beginning. Well, then we went to Spirit Lake. And I kept telling Andy and Jenny, I need to be on this mission trip, but I don't know why. God did, I didn't. Okay? I went on that Spirit, trip, uh, Spirit Lake mission trip, and I think I got more out of it than they got out of it. God had a plan for me, you see? And this is where this comes. We were scraping a building one day, the paint away. It was an old building at Fort Totten, and we were going to scrape away all the old layers, all the old paint. And then we were going to repaint it and make it new. And Pastor came up to me, and he's like, you okay? I'm like, no. And the tears just came. I felt God in that paint scraper that day. He gave me every permission to let all of this go. You see, we are working on a brick wall. And you start taking all this paint away, and what do you see? Just the wall. That's my bare soul. This is my bare soul. God gave me permission to take this paint scraper and take away every moment of self-doubt I ever had, layer by layer by layer leaving nothing but this blank wall of my soul to start over. So over is what I did. Over is what I will continue to strive to do. Starting over is 
now my purpose and my meaning to reach anyone who may have been in that situation like myself, where they had no purpose, no meaning, no self-esteem, nothing. Because you see, my friends, here and online, you too can remove every bit of self-doubt and self-worth if you just turn it to God. This paint scraper, as I said, is my self-worth, my soul, my grace, and my redemption. God gave me a reason in this paint scraper to go on. Go on to be truly happy. Go on to know that I did the best that I could in other situations that were presented for me. Enough that I knew I could move on. So for each of you, there are baskets back uh, as you exit the sanctuary, and there's baskets up here. You too can have your own paint scraper. Cool colors. I urge you to take one with you. They are retractable. It is an open blade, FYI. Take a paint scraper with you. Put it on your keychain. Carry it with you always. And when life gets tough, or you feel like you're just not worth enough, take a look at that paint scraper and know that you, too, can remove all of your layers as well. Amen.